Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Oh, welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and with me, as usual, is Matthew Stockton. How are you this fine day, Matthew? It's a fine morning. I've had a lazy morning. I got up at four and just did stuff. At four? (laughs) Getting up at four is a lazy morning? Yeah, I'm just, I'm not, like, I'm one of these people, like, six hours tops is is what I can sleep. I can't do that. I have to have eight hours or uh, Rumpelstiltskin here is really grumpy, so. Do you become Grumpelstiltskin? I become Grumpelstiltskin, (laughs) yeah. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to Dark Poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. On April 25, 1978, RCMP Constable Thomas Brian King, a 40-year-old father of three, pulled over a vehicle for a minor traffic offense at 12.35 a.m. on Highway 11, roughly a quarter mile, 400 meters north of the Saskatoon city boundary. Inside the car were two young men, 18-year-old Daryl Luke Crook and 19-year-old Gregory Michael Fisher. The pair had intentionally disabled the vehicle's taillight to draw the attention of law enforcement. As the unsuspecting officer was checking Fisher's driver's license, the two men overpowered, disarmed, and manacled him with his service handcuffs. The pair then forced the officer into their car and drove into Saskatoon where they showed him off to friends. Afterward, Crook and Fisher drove to a secluded spot near the Saskatchewan River where they beat and tortured the helpless constable. Then they executed Brian King with his service revolver, shooting him twice, and throwing his body into the river. This is Dark Poutine episode 302, the murder of RCMP Constable Thomas Brian King. 
the boy who would later become Constable King, RCMP registration number 31915, was born in Winnipegosis, Manitoba on March 29, 1938, to Aubrey and Margaret King. Growing up, he went by his second name, Brian. His birthplace, Winnipegosis, is approximately 371 kilometers northwest of the similarly named provincial capital, Winnipeg. Winnipegosis is a small, unincorporated community in the rural municipality of Mossy River. It lies at the mouth of the Mossy River on Lake Winnipegosis in west-central Manitoba. The area's history is deeply intertwined with the fur trade, timber, and fishing industries, the main economic drivers during the 19th and 20th centuries. Originally, Winnipegosis was a bustling hub for trappers and traders, with the Hudson's Bay Company being one of the first to establish a European presence. The community saw significant growth with the arrival of the railroad in 1897, which led to an influx of Ukrainian and Central European settlers. Winnipegosis was officially incorporated as a municipality in 1915 and remained so until its amalgamation with the rural municipality of Mossy River in 2015, a hundred years later. The name Winnipegosis comes from the Cree word Winnipi, meaning muddy slash murky waters, and the suffix osis, meaning little, indicative of its connection to Lake Winnipegosis. This relatively shallow lake was known for its sudden stormy conditions, which led to numerous tales of shipwreck and survival. That name makes me giggle. Hey, hey, what's that rash on your arm? Oh, it's just a mild case of Winnipegosis. I have a little Winnipegosis <laughs> today. <laughs> a little bit of cream will clear that up. Yeah. Oh, I, and if you're from Winnipegosis, don't get mad at us. No. It's probably the first mention of that place on uh, a podcast. I don't yeah. know. I'm just... It essentially means little Winnipeg. Right? I've never... I've been to Winnipeg numerous times. Lovely mm-hmm. people. Actually, yep. Always always had a great time in Manitoba. I've never heard of Winnipegosis before. Me neither before this podcast. Anyway, education has been a cornerstone of the community since the formation of its school district in 1899. A significant structure, a two-story brick school building, was erected in 1914 and remained operational until 1960. The community also boasts a rich tapestry of religious history with various congregations and churches established over the years. Healthcare in Winnipegosis began with Dr. E. A. Ernest Med's practice in 1909. Over the years, the community developed its healthcare infrastructure, including the Winnipegosis General Hospital and a personal care home. Public services have been a crucial part of Winnipegosis' development. The community established a police post in 1915 and later contracted the RCMP for law enforcement. A volunteer fire brigade was also formed in 1933, emphasizing the community's commitment to safety and service. As of the 2021 census, Winnipegosis has a population of 945, demonstrating a notable increase from its 2016 population. So it's not a big place. With its deep historical roots and strong sense of togetherness, this little community continues to be a unique and charming part of Manitoba's landscape. Brian King's educational journey took him through Fork River High School in Fork River, Manitoba, and later Dauphin Collegiate in Dauphin, Manitoba. During his school years, as with many Canadians who aspire to be police officers, Brian actively participated in extracurricular activities including the Boy Scouts and Air Cadets, 
significantly shaping his early life. Were you a Boy Scout? I definitely was. I was a Chief Scout. Oh. I went all the way to the tippy top and got the uh, award from the Governor General handed to me by the Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia. Wow. Yeah. I was a beaver. You were a beaver? <laughs> that was it? That's as far as I got. Wow. Uh, yeah, I went through beavers, cubs, and Boy Scouts. Uh, I never went to a Boy Scout one of the big jamborees. I always wanted to, but I, I never got the chance. I love that word, jamboree. Jamboree. It sounds like, f it sounds just like, it sounds like a, a great party. Let's have it a is. jamboree. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> On November 16th, 1963, Brian King married Marie Carrie Sidor in a ceremony held at the Holy Eucharist Ukrainian Catholic Church in Oakburn, Manitoba. The couple was blessed with three children, Ashley Thomas, born on February 15, 1966, Lori June, who arrived on September 29, 1967, and Leslie Dawn, born on March 7, 1969. Before his law enforcement career, Brian King embarked on a professional path with the Canadian National Railways as a telegrapher, a role he commenced in 1957. His journey with the RCMP began as a civilian member radio operator on January 4, 1971, under the registration number C-829, where he was assigned to the Saskatoon Telecommunications Centre. His career evolved further when he transitioned to the role of Special Constable, registration number S-1032, on January 3, 1974. It's, it's, I, I'm just, the telegrapher just throws me back. Like, I was like, wow, they had like essentially Morse code in the backs of trains back then. Sure, yeah, yeah. In Britain, it's called, they're, they're called telegraphists. Telegraphists. Save yeah. our souls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP Depot Division in Regina, Saskatchewan, has been the central training facility for the RCMP since its establishment in 1885. During the 1970s, RCMP training typically lasted around six months, and it was known for its physical and mental intensity, designed to prepare recruits for the diverse challenges of policing across Canada. The training curriculum combined classroom learning and practical field exercises, classroom studies included Canadian law, investigative techniques, RCMP regulations, first aid, and social issues relevant to policing. Practical training involved physical fitness, firearms training, defensive tactics, driving, and other police-related skills. Physical conditioning was a significant component of training. Recruits underwent rigorous physical training to ensure they were in top shape, which was essential for the demanding nature of police work. Marching drills and proper deportment were fundamental parts of the training reflecting the RCMP's military heritage and its emphasis on discipline and precision. You know, I was wondering uh, about the physical fitness of police now versus back then. Mm -hmm. um, in, my, in my neighborhood, when I see uh, the beat cops, um, you don't see them very often, but they're always actually young and quite fit in my neighborhood. But, oh, maybe those are the ones you notice, Matthew. <laughs> yeah, maybe Yeah, maybe it's, what's that called? Like brain block? I, I yeah. just block the other ones out. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's what's really cool as well, they're, they're about 50-50 men and women, which I like to see. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, on TV, you always get the 
fat cop at the donut shop trope, right? Right. On, yeah. And 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 I was like, is that true, right? And um, so I actually did a bit of research this morning um, because inquiring minds wanted to know. Yeah. Well, at least at least mine. Uh, the Canadian Journal of Diabetes actually said that police officers, and this makes sense, begin their careers slimmer and fitter than the population, right? But within 10 to 15 years of service, 30 to 40% of them are obese and less fit than the general population. I must be a police officer then. <laughs> yeah, me too, right? <laughs> yeah. But but when you stop and think about it, it makes sense, right? So think of all these things, right? Shift work, you know, shift work doesn't aid in great eating habits, right? Right. Lack of physical activity because a lot of cops are in cars most of the day or doing the, at the desk doing paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're out and about driving, you know, when you pick up food on the go, Mike, you, you generally don't go for like the salad bar somewhere, right? Right. <laughs> you know, nobody does. And um, of course, stress issues because of the job. And and I'm an, I, I have this saying, I don't, I don't eat because I'm hungry. I eat to fill the emptiness I feel inside. Um, <laughs> so it makes sense, right? It makes sense. And of course, they get they get a bit older, right? It's true. I, I watch yeah. a lot of cop shows, and I noticed, you know, uh, it de- sometimes it depends on location where <laughs> where people are. Some of the cop shows I watch that are from, just saying, from the southern United States, the the gentlemen and ladies in uniform tend to be a little heftier, more robust, more robust, uh, not able to run as fast. <laughs> I saw a comedian, and I don't know if this is true. He said a study just showed that you're more likely to get shot at by an overweight police officer. Mm. Interesting, because they can't, because they can't chase you. And they can't you. get you. <laughs> Sorry, I should not laugh. <laughs> That's a comedian's opinion. That's not ours. Yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) In the 70s, much like today, recruits participated in mock scenarios that simulated real-life policing situations. This hands-on approach helps to develop critical thinking, problem-solving skills, and the ability to apply theoretical knowledge in practical situations. During the 1970s, there was a growing recognition of the evolving nature of Canadian society. Training began to include elements that reflected these societal changes, such as community policing principles, cultural sensitivity, and understanding of diverse communities. When they finished training, recruits were sworn in as constables and received their postings. These could be anywhere across Canada, often in rural or remote areas, as the RCMP is a federal police force with responsibilities ranging from municipal to national policing. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP, while recognized as a significant national symbol and integral law enforcement body in Canada, has faced several criticisms and controversies over the years. The RCMP has been criticized for its handling of issues involving Indigenous communities, including inadequate investigations into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and the historical enforcement of policies detrimental to these communities. Allegations of systemic workplace harassment and discrimination, particularly concerning gender and sexual orientation, have been a significant concern leading to legal challenges and calls for organizational reform. The use of force by the RCMP has come under scrutiny, 
with critics highlighting instances of excessive force and advocating for better de-escalation training. Issues of transparency and accountability in operations and internal investigations have raised concerns and the need for more independent oversight. Operational challenges and resource allocation, particularly balancing federal duties with local policing contracts, have also been points of contention. There have been widespread calls for cultural and structural changes within the RCMP to address centralization of power, internal culture, and adaptability to contemporary policing needs. The mental health and well-being of RCMP officers, especially those dealing with high-stress and traumatic situations, have been areas of concern with advocacy for improved support systems. Additionally, the RCMP's role in national security and intelligence gathering has sometimes been criticized for its effectiveness and adherence to civil liberties, especially in the post-9-11 era. These issues continue to be a part of the ongoing public discussion about the RCMP's role in Canadian society, leading to various measures and reforms undertaken by the organization. Yeah, um... Okay, bear with me here, Mike. Okay, because I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out what I mean when I'm saying it. Okay, sure. So we absolutely need to hold police to account, right? They're given guns, sure. You know, they can use force, but I actually think we have to look at ourselves as a nation and how we think of and treat others, mm-hmm. because you know I think the police are. Pro- I think they probably lag a bit in culture change, but police forces across the country are what we made them right and they are canadian citizens right Mm -hmm. so all this diversity and sensitivity training and body cameras these are all fine Um, but it lets us kind of pretend that there's a distance between our own attitudes as a nation's and 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 those of the cops that are hired to protect us 100 percent agree 100 percent. you know the truth is police reflect canada Mm -hmm. right and whatever we might make of our criminal justice system it can't be said that it was imposed by from some fascist minority we made it over time right right and we talk about culture change in the police and, and that will only happen if there's culture change ourselves because mm-hmm. c- cops are us and you know we send them into situations armed you know with the same self-generated fears that we live by of, of yep. the other of racism of anti-semitism of homophobia so some people call the police pigs which I, I never do and never have. But, you know, frankly, the police's bosses are pigs and the politicians that hire those bosses are pigs voted in by us pigs, right? So so, yeah. so what I'm saying is, yes, hold them to account, but let's look at ourselves in the mirror first. After completing his training at the Depot Division in Regina, Saskatchewan, as part of iTroop, Brian King was posted to the Saskatoon Airport Detachment. A significant change occurred in May 1974, when the force started to admit married individuals as regular members. Seizing this opportunity, Brian King fulfilled a long-held aspiration on October 3, 1974, when he was elevated a constable. Following additional training at Depot with Troop 20, Constable King was assigned to the Saskatoon Detachment, marking another notable milestone in his distinguished career in law enforcement. On April 24, 1978, 19-year-old Gregory Michael Fisher lived with his parents in Saskatoon. From December 1977 until early April 1978, he worked in the oil fields near Lloydminster, employed by his brother-in-law, Bob Ockenden, 
and lived with him and his sister, Brenda Ockenden. That morning, Fisher called his sister to check if his income tax refund had arrived, which it had. In the afternoon, Gregory Fisher and his friend Daryl Luke Crook drove to Lloydminster in Fisher's 1964 White Rambler, which had a malfunctioning taillight and headlight. Fisher and Crook left Saskatoon around 2 p.m. They briefly stopped outside North Battleford to discard an almost empty whiskey bottle, transferring the remaining contents into a 7-Up bottle. In North Battleford, they bought a case of beer, and later, in a small town en route to Lloydminster, they acquired six more bottles of beer. Near North Battleford, Crook noticed a rattling noise and realized it was the loosely hanging license plate. He removed it and placed it inside the car on the back seat. They reached Lloydminster around dinner time and were told by the Ockendons' children that Bob and Brenda weren't home. Fisher and Crook waited and when the Ockendons returned, the group enjoyed a Chinese meal and chatted. Fisher checked the amount on his refund check and later visited Morris Yakubowski, whom he knew from his time in Lloydminster. The visit was brief, and Fisher invited another acquaintance, Patrick McKevitt, for a drink, but Patrick declined. Greg Fisher then returned to the Ockenden home. Fisher and Crook then left Lloydminster for Saskatoon around 8.25 p.m., buying 12 more bottles of beer before their departure. In North Battleford, they stopped again to purchase another six bottles. Outside North Battleford, east of the city, around 11 p.m., RCMP constables Noel and Ward on highway patrol noticed their car with one headlight and stopped them. After verifying their identification and issuing a warning ticket for the car's defects, Fisher and Crook continued to Saskatoon. How drunk were they at this time? That's a really good question. One could infer that they were pretty pickled. Uh, so uh, that that's that's a lot. Like I'm listening to this, I'm like, oh my god, how are they putting this stuff down? And and then I'm also thinking, why didn't the the cops nail them on drink driving? And and I was thinking, I guess it's 1973. Well, there were rules, but maybe they weren't as strict. 1978. But yeah, that's surprising. I mean, people were being pulled over and charged with drunk driving at that point. But interestingly, what came out later was that these two had considered trying to overpower these two police officers, but because there was two of them, they decided not to do it. We'll get deeper into that later on. These guys are dicks. Yeah. So that's my technical term for them, Mike. The pair continued to Saskatoon, where they would finally have that fateful meeting with Constable Brian King. That evening, RCMP Constables Rushlow and King were on patrol. After midnight, they separated to continue patrolling individually. Rushlow recounted receiving a call from King, which led him to stop a vehicle near 51st Street. Shortly afterward, King pursued and stopped another vehicle. Rushlow, busy with that other traffic stop, noticed King's pursuit of a white 1964 Rambler. At about 12.35 a.m., Rushlow observed Brian King's car, identified by its activated dome lights and flashers, stopping a vehicle. By 12.40 a.m., Rushlow heard what sounded like a car backfiring. Upon completing his task with a tow truck operator, Rushlow went to King's location. He found the police car with its engine running and the lights on, but no sign of King anywhere. Assistance was called, and within minutes, Constable Thompson of the city police arrived, followed by Constable Lastuka from the identification section. 
Rushlow then joined others in setting up a roadblock on 51st Street. That that would be disturbing. Imagine my, you know, these guys work together, right? So one, yep. of, you, one of your colleagues' cars is sitting there with the light on with no sign of him. Mm-hmm. Where, where is he? Where's the car he pulled over? Like that's a little bit of a panic moment that would be for me anyway. Right? Totally. A description of the white 1964 Rambler was distributed via radio to local RCMP and Saskatoon City Police. As one of their own was missing, all officers were on edge and diligently looking for the suspect vehicle. Sometime later, in the early morning hours of April 25th, City Police Constables Bracken and Penny were on patrol. As they were driving west on 20th Street, between Avenues G and H, they spotted a vehicle matching the description of the one they'd been instructed to look out for. Constable Bracken observed two males in the car as it passed by. The officers quickly executed a U-turn to follow the vehicle, and according to Bracken's observation, the car accelerated away. The pursuit led them into an alley between Avenue F and Avenue G in the 100 block, culminating in a dead end. Upon reaching the spot, they found the chased car stationary, with its doors open, lights off, and the engine presumably still running, but no one was inside. Constable Bracken then noticed someone fleeing through a backyard towards Avenue G. He chased the suspect on foot, following him through the front yard of a house. As the person attempted to climb over a fence, Bracken tackled him to the ground. After a brief struggle, Bracken managed to handcuff the man, who was then positively identified as Gregory Michael Fisher. At this point, Constable Penny returned to assist, and they placed Fisher, who had a significant amount of blood on his clothing, particularly around the thigh, waist, and groin areas, into the police car. Constable Bracken called for backup, and in response, Constables Lowry and Peters arrived at the scene to assist with the situation. Constable Peters and Fisher talked. Bracken later testified that Peters asked Fisher, Where did the blood come from? Fisher replied, I don't know. Peters then asked Fisher, What did you do with him? To which Fisher said, Who? And Peters replied, The RCMP officer. Fisher answered, I didn't do it. Daryl did it. Constable Peters asked, Did what? And Fisher said, Daryl shot an RC. After being warned of his rights by Constable Bracken, Fisher said he would lead the officers to Constable King's body. More after a quick break. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far? Do you know how long he was missing for and if his family was was uh, sort of contacted to say that we found his car, but we can't find him. Well, we get into how long he was missing later oh, okay. on, and it was it was a matter of hours, and I am not clear on whether or not the family was contacted at that point. I would think not, because yeah. it could have been, he pursued this guy, yada, 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 on right. foot. The other guy took off in the car, and True. He, he, you know, he was True. off running... Right kind of because, thing yeah because my, my mind's just like as soon as you were reading that part about the car being there with it and my one of my first thoughts was oh his poor family right mm -hmm. the three got into a patrol car 
Officers Penny and Bracken were in front. Gregory Fisher was in the back seat and directed them toward the power station near the Saskatchewan River. Following Fisher's directions, they continued past the power station. Soon they reached a clearing resembling a road where Fisher told them to pull over. The group then walked from the power station toward the riverbank. The bank was quite steep, but there was a somewhat flat area about halfway down. Close to the river, Bracken inquired, Is he in the water? To which Fisher responded, Yes, I think so. From court documents, quote, Bracken shone his flashlight along the river's edge and saw the body of Brian King a short distance from the shore. He was dead, and his clothing was in great disarray. His coat was open, and his shirt was pushed up on his chest. There was a great amount of blood in the area of his head and in the water. The body was left to be attended to by the other officers. Constable Bracken and Penny took Fisher to the patrol car and then back to the police station. When the body was removed, King's revolver holster was empty. There was no revolver found in the area, end quote. Bracken was able to identify the body as that of Constable King as he knew him personally. As well as King's gun, his badge was also missing. You know, back then they probably didn't have a lot of psychologists helping police through these things. Mm. Like, this is something we don't have to do Yeah, in our daily work lives, <laughs> you know? Um mm-hmm. He's finding a friend's body. Right. I had to go through PTSD counseling after a guy I worked with in security died in front of me wearing the same uniform. Uh, And it has this weird effect on you. Like, I'd only known him for a day and it screwed me up. Yeah. I can't imagine it being a friend. And who's been murdered by two thugs. Right. right? Yeah. And I'm starting to worry that one of these jerks... um, took his badge as a memento. That isn't clear. It isn't clear whether or not Brian King threw it away himself. It was later claimed that he threw it away himself, but the person making those claims was one of the people accused of killing him. So, yeah. And I'm not sure whether or not they ever even found it. So a manhunt began for Daryl Luke Crook. Around 2 a.m. on April 25th, Corporal Crozier and Constable Rushlow, uniformed officers from the RCMP, established a roadblock at Idlewild Drive and 51st Street. Accompanying them were two drivers from Majestic Towing. Both officers were carrying a revolver. Additionally, Corporal Crozier was equipped with a shotgun. They were on the lookout for an alleged cop killer. At around 4.20 a.m., a late-model blue Chevrolet half-ton truck approached the roadblock and was stopped. Constable Rushlow approached the truck on the driver's side and found two young men inside. He requested identification from the driver who presented an operator's license in the name of Frank Crook. Rushlow suspected that the passenger matched the description of Daryl Crook who they were looking for. Constable Rushlow then asked the passenger for identification. He provided a driver's license and birth certificate, both in the name of Roland J. Harvey. When asked for a birth date, the passenger provided a date that matched the documents and also gave an address as listed on the license. While this happened, Corporal Crozier stood about six to eight feet from Rushlow. Rushlow instructed the passenger to keep his hands on his head and remain seated while Crozier moved to the truck's passenger side. Meanwhile, Rushlow and Frank Crook stepped out of the truck for a quick search. Crozier then escorted the passenger to the police car seating him in the back. 
Returning to the truck with Frank Crook, Constable Rushlow searched the vehicle and found a wallet in the glove compartment, but it contained no identification. Corporal Crozier, who stayed with the passenger, radioed for a photograph of the person they were searching for. Shortly after, Constables Hay and Matheson arrived with the photo. Hay questioned the passenger, who reiterated his driver's license and birth certificate information. Unconvinced, Hay handed him a pen and asked him to sign his name, which he did as Roland Harvey on a cigarette package. At this point, Staff Sergeant Matheson and Inspector Waller arrived. Inspector Waller transferred the young man from the car into the back of Matheson's car. They then drove back to the RCMP office in Saskatoon, where the young man was taken to the detention area. Once the man had been stripped of his clothing for evidence, left with his underwear and socks, and issued coveralls, Corporal Crozier came into the holding area and took the young man's fingerprints. After doing so, Crozier left to compare these new prints with those already on file. The comparison revealed that the fingerprints matched identifying the passenger as Daryl Luke Crook. Staff Sergeant Matheson then gave Daryl the standard warning. Quote, Daryl, I must advise you that you are under arrest for the alleged murder of Constable Brian King and that an investigation is now being conducted. He then went on to say, I must warn you that you need not say anything. You have nothing to hope from any promise or favor and nothing to fear from any threat whether or not you say anything. Anything you do say may be used as evidence. End quote. When asked, Daryl nodded his understanding of the warning but said nothing more, asking only if there was a place where he could get some sleep. After a few hours of rest in an interview room chair, Daryl was asked again if he'd like to speak about what happened, and Daryl replied he did not want to say anything until he had spoken to his lawyer. At 10.15 a.m., Detective Bushane briefly left the room, returning a minute later to charge Daryl with Constable King's murder and formally warn him, which Daryl understood. Officers smelled alcohol on Daryl, but he refused to provide a breath sample to establish his blood alcohol content level or speak any further at that time. Here's an interesting fact. The first real-world world testing of a breathalyzer, mm -hmm. it was in Indiana, and it was called the Drunkometer. The Drunkometer. Yeah, and uh, I was... when. I read the script. I was like, did he have the right to refuse? And I started to look into breathalyzers and everything. And this is what I do in the mornings at 4 a.m. when I get your script. Yeah. <laughs> I start geeking out on stupid stuff. And I, I just thought a drunkometer is kind of a funny name for this thing. Yeah. Paraffin tests to look for gunshot residue, photographs, and a hair sample were taken that afternoon. Daryl received new clothes at around 4.40 p.m. and was later placed in an interview room. That evening, Daryl was asked for a blood sample, which he agreed to give. They went to the city hospital for the sample, and Daryl was then handed over to the detention staff. The next day, a couple of detectives took Daryl to retrace the crime scene route. Daryl provided some details about the incident, but could not locate Officer King's badge, which he claimed King had thrown away himself. To attempt to understand the evening's events better, detectives spoke with others who had seen the two accused in the hours leading up to Brian King's murder. Morris Yakubowski, whom Greg Fisher had visited in Lloydminster, said that Fisher appeared nervous when arriving at his place after dinner. Fisher mentioned removing his car's back license plate to get stopped by the police on purpose. Yakubowski found Fisher's behavior and statements peculiar 
particularly when Fisher mimicked holding a gun and expressed a desire to drive an RCMP car and, quote, get a blue boy. That last phrase, police surmised, indicated a desire to harm a police officer. I cannot understand, like, we've we've seen this a few times in a few shows, and I've seen it on the news, where people intentionally go out of their way to do it. And it, first of all, the guy's a total moron saying that he's going to do it. Secondly, he's talking about taking a human life, right? Mm-hmm. And, th- and thirdly, he's in this small town. Ta- like, how does he even think he's going to get away with it? Like, this guy has, like, two brain cells. Yeah. And no more and no moral compass. I think these guys were sharing a brain cell with somebody else that night, and that that other person had it. Jeez, Louise. Yeah. Patrick McEvitt, who visited Yakubowski while Fisher was there, heard Fisher discussing evading previous charges and wanting to get back at the Mounties. Fisher demonstrated a gun with his hand, suggesting shooting when stopped by the police. He also talked about flattening a policeman's car tires, which McEvitt and others discouraged. Brenda Ockenden, Fisher's sister, noticed the missing license plate on Greg's car when he and Daryl Crook arrived in Lloydminster. Greg mentioned wanting to drive a police car, which would happen if they were stopped without a license plate. Daryl was mostly silent, occasionally nodding in agreement. When later questioned, Fisher denied the accuracy of McEvitt's and Yakubowski's statements claiming minimal interaction with McEvitt and vaguely recalled telling Yakubowski about riding in a police car. He claimed he couldn't recall the conversation that he'd had with his sister. Alcohol, he said, was playing havoc with his memory. Fisher did go on to describe being stopped by an RCMP officer, Constable King, near Saskatoon's airport exit. He had just finished a beer and handed it to Daryl before stopping. He didn't remember talking to the officer, but saw Daryl and the officer arguing near a ditch. Following Daryl's instruction, he hit the officer during their struggle. Daryl then took the officer's revolver, fired it into the air, that was the backfire that Rushlow heard, and forced the officer back into the car. Under Daryl's orders, Fisher drove to Jim Bailey's place. There, they interacted with their friends, showing them this RCMP officer who they'd kidnapped. The friends wanted nothing to do with it. Fisher claimed he briefly considered escaping at this point. Fisher then claimed that Daryl, holding the revolver, instructed him to drive toward leisure land. He felt scared and shocked complying with Daryl's demands. They drove toward the Queen Elizabeth power station. When asked what happened next, Fisher said, quote, Well, we drove past the power station. Daryl told me to stop the car. I did. Made a U-turn and faced the car north. He told the RCMP officer to get out of the car, and he took off his handcuffs and told him to walk on down the bank. We all started on down towards the bank, and I got about ten feet down from the road. I told Daryl I was going to go back up and turn the car off, and that's when I heard Daryl yell, I should cave your skull in. On my way back, I heard two shots fired. I stopped for about fifteen seconds, And that's when Daryl told me to get down here and grab him by the arms and throw him in the river. At this point, I didn't know if the RCMP officer was dead or alive, and I hesitated in picking him up because I was scared. Daryl said in a loud tone of voice, just pick him up, end quote. Hours after Constable King's body was removed from the scene, an autopsy was performed by a pathologist from court documents, quote, Dr. Chorney found two bullet wounds in the head of the deceased, 
one on the left eyebrow and the other above the earlobe. The bullets, which caused these wounds, were removed from the deceased's head. There were powder burns on his face, on the left cheek of the deceased. The doctor found a long, shallow gash. On the top of the deceased's head, there were three blunt-type injuries. These injuries had split the scalp. As there was little or no swelling associated with these injuries, the doctor was of the opinion that such injuries were sustained either after death or shortly before death. He said the cause of death were injuries sustained by the bullet wounds, either of which would have been fatal, end quote. Daryl Crook had escaped when Greg Fisher was apprehended. According to court documents, he then made his way to his sister's place, where he said, quote, we killed a cop. He convinced his brother to drive him to a remote cabin. He obtained his brother-in-law's driver's license and birth certificate to establish a false identity. Then they fled and were later arrested at the roadblock. I spoke with a friend from Saskatchewan who was living in B.C. at the time of the killing. He said he remembers Constable King's murder being national news. Gregory Fisher and Daryl Crook were charged with King's murder, and Frank Crook, Daryl's brother, was charged as an accessory after the fact. When they were pulled over, Frank was driving Daryl to that cabin hideout outside of town. Some, including police officers, thought reinstatement of the death penalty was warranted for the two killers, considering the brutality of the crime. Most, though, just remembered the fallen member. The Star Phoenix newspaper quoted Staff Sergeant Ron Lawford of, of the Saskatoon Detachment of the RCMP, quote, We live with that speculation every day, the possibility of a police officer being killed, but when it happens, it's absolutely a shock. I don't think you ever really believe it until it finally sinks in. I still can't believe it, end quote. Brian King had made a significant mark with his four years on the force. Quote, he was one of the most personable individuals you ever wanted to know. He was hardworking and dedicated to his family, his three children, his wife. You know, his biggest ambition was to get into the force. He was extremely happy, one fellow officer said in the same article. According to another colleague, King was well-liked in Warm and Langham, the district he served. Quote, he was their policeman. If they had problems, they'd call Brian personally, the officer explained. Quote, he took a real interest in people. He tried to help them, especially young people. He took time to talk. He loved to go into the school and talk about the history of the police. The children in the schools thought the world of him, another officer added. Quote, as much as he was admired on the job, he was loved by his friends. He always had a joke to tell. At a party, he loved to play his guitar and play the fiddle. End quote. See, and this is what people forget. Hmm. The uniform comes off, and you go home to your family. Yeah, there's a human being underneath there. Human beings under the blue suit, right? Mm -hmm. um, that are, you know, as complex as, as the rest of us. Yep. Right? And want the same things as the rest of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and these dorks that are like, I want to kill somebody in blue. I'm like, just... I don't know. These, these sort of guys really upset me, Mike. The RCMP solemnly held a funeral for Constable Thomas Brian King, 40, at the training academy on the afternoon of April 28th. After a service in Saskatoon's St. Peter and St. Paul Ukrainian Catholic Church, a procession led to Regina for a graveside service. The ceremony, attended by police from across Canada, 
and led by Assistant Commissioner George Reed and Chief Superintendent Robert Mills, was, according to reports, marked by quiet dignity. King's family, including his wife and three daughters, followed the flag-draped casket. The service concluded with senior officers paying respects, leaving the attendees in a state of somber reflection. Separate trials were held for Daryl Luke Crook and Gregory Michael Fisher. They were both found guilty. According to the CopsUnlimited.ca Facebook page, Marie King Forrest, a Saskatoon teacher and grandmother, has faced two reviews since 1994 for the men convicted of killing her first husband. The first jury decided that Fisher could apply for parole after 23 years instead of 25. The second denied Crook, who pulled the trigger, any reduction. Quote, you can't find any words to tell people how horrid it is to live through this again, said King Forrest, who broke down twice during a brief interview with McLean's. Quote, I want the law changed so other people don't have to go through the hell I went through. End quote. Eleven years following her father's passing, his daughter, Lori June, enlisted in the RCMP. Lori J. King, who achieved the rank of sergeant and was assigned regimental number 41224, served in the K Division, Alberta, of the RCMP. She retired from her duties on November 6th, 2015. That's incredible. Right? Isn't it cool? Like, even after her dad is killed on the job, she wants to go and follow in his footsteps. I think that is so neat. I wonder if there were long conversations with her mom about it. Probably. Oh, I would right? say her mom and sisters, for sure. They were probably right? concerned, you know. Why are you doing this? Maybe they're like, yeah, get in there. Maybe they're concerned. Maybe they had different opinions. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's... Uh, it's a great thing that she did. Yep. It was in 1994 that Gregory Fisher applied for early parole, citing Canada's controversial Faint Hope Clause. This was also used by Clifford Olson at one point. Canada's Faint Hope Clause, legally known as Section 745.6 of the Criminal Code, is a unique provision that allows inmates serving life sentences for murder the possibility of having their parole ineligibility period reduced. It's important to note that this clause does not guarantee early release, but instead offers a chance to reduce the time an inmate must serve before being eligible to apply for parole. Here are the key aspects of the Faint Hope Clause. Eligibility. It applies only to offenders sentenced to life imprisonment for murder, first or second degree, who have served at least 15 years of their sentence. It does not apply to those convicted of multiple murders. Jury Assessment. Eligible inmates can apply to have a jury assess their case. This jury decides whether to reduce the parole ineligibility period. The jury considers factors such as the inmate's behavior while in custody, the nature of the crime, and any victim impact statements. Judicial Review Before the case goes to a jury, a judge reviews the application to ensure a reasonable prospect of success. If the judge does not find merit in the application, it is dismissed at this stage. Parole Eligibility If the jury agrees to reduce the parole ineligibility period, the inmate can apply for parole earlier than sentenced initially. However, parole is not guaranteed. The Parole Board of Canada makes the final decision based on whether the inmate poses a risk to society. Amendments and Limitations the Faint Hope Clause has been amended over the years, with significant changes in 2011. 
These changes barred anyone convicted of murder after December 2, 2011 from applying, effectively phasing out the clause for new cases. The Faint Hope Clause has been a subject of debate in Canada. Proponents argue that it provides an incentive for good behavior and rehabilitation for those serving life sentences, while opponents raise concerns about the impact on victims' families and the principle of delivering justice for heinous crimes. Despite testimony from witnesses saying that the years of incarceration had changed him, 35-year-old Gregory Fisher's application was denied. He did receive parole years later. In 2011, Gregory Fisher was arrested for impaired driving by the Warman RCMP on Highway 7 near Saskatoon. Gregory Fisher, on lifetime parole, was returned to prison for two years. So, not so changed. Not so changed, and arrested by the same detachment as the person whom he killed. Well, that's a, a little bit of, it's kind of sweet, actually. I don't know. You know, the same guy's going, you know what? We're going to put you back in. <laughs> yep. Nighty night. Time to yep. go away again. Mm -hmm. Who knows what's happened since 2011? Maybe good things for that person, we can hope. Uh, Constable King is listed on the RCMP honor roll as number 156. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 302, the murder of RCMP Constable Thomas Brian King. That was a harrowing one, Mike. Yeah, it was. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one 877 darkptn We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Alrighty, so uh, let's listen to our first voicemail. Hi there, this is Dallas calling from Calgary, Alberta, originally from North Vancouver. Um, every time I hear your podcast, I realize how much I miss Vancouver. Um, anyways, um, I'm just calling to compliment you on your podcast. It's fantastic. Um, the thing I like most is your friendship. Um, I think between the both of you is quite admirable. Um, I am a queer person who has quite a few straight friends, and I think having that camaraderie is fantastic. Mike, I think you're a fantastic ally, and I really appreciate it. And um, Matthew, you're, you're just hilarious as hell, as any queer person should be. Um, I love your thoughtful podcast. I love that you're focused on the integrity of the victims as well as the families. Um, I love your focus on diversity and inclusiv inclusivity. Um, yeah, that's all I really have to say. Um, anyways, have a great day and go shit in your hat. Thanks. Bye. Sometimes I'm not expecting the person to say go shit in our hats, and they do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually looking at North Vancouver right now, where she's from. Yep. And uh, when she was talking about our friendship, Matthew was giving me the finger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, well. Thank you for the call. Yeah, much appreciated. Much, much appreciated. Uh, what do you think she does there? Um I'm kind of curious about her uh, mode of filling her pockets 
Janet Jackson backup dancer. Janet Jackson backup dancer. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to do that in a in a former life, not really, but uh, I I would have uh, more, been more into Morris Day in the time. Uh, let's move on to our second voicemail. Hey guys, Great Big Pete here. Uh, Real talk. Uh, I've been listening to your show for a few years now, and wow, uh, episode three hundred and three hundred one, I guess, really, really top notch stuff. Uh, the interview with Stacy her, uh, her uh, Daniel's mom just blew me right out of the water, and I actually cried. Um, yeah, uh, I just wanted to thank you guys for doing what you do. It's really great stuff, uh, and keep it up. Love you guys. Bye. Wow, thanks, Great Big Pete. Uh, that's that's. I think that's the first time Great Big Pete has called in with an absolute straight edged call because usually he's he's has a little fun with us but i i always imagine great big pete as being a tall glass of water tall glass of water yeah, yeah. i thought I, I was thinking more round great no because when i think great big i think round i picture him being like six five. Oh well maybe maybe great big pete is that kind of great big yeah my knees go weak when i hear his voice oh dear anyway <laughs> Thanks, Great Big Pete. We really Thanks. appreciate that. Thank you, sir. Hello, Mike and Matthew. This is Kelsey calling you from Lethbridge. Um, I just wanted to say congratulations on 300 episodes. That is truly insane. And I had to look back to what year you guys had started because it felt like I've been with you from the beginning, I think, pretty darn close anyways. I was listening back to an old episode with Carol just the other week, lovely Carol. And I'm just thinking about how, how far you've really come, um, Mike, and of course the lovely addition of Matthew to our team. I, I just really love how the heart of the podcast never changed as co-hosts changed, how you've really kept everything very victim-focused. And on the families, the victims' families, too, which is awesome. This episode about Daniel really, really got to me. Um, I, myself, am a musician. And I just, I had to say what a great job you guys did on the episode. Um, hearing that song um, brought tears to my eyes at work. I'm still at work here. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you guys. And I wanted to add one more thing there. The last time I called, I was giving all the props to Matthew, so I'm going to continue to do that here. Um, I just wanted to say that I really appreciated Matthew's perspective on this episode about the narrative and language being used to harm the LGBTQ community. Um, him talking about how the, the misuse of the language around grooming and everything, while needs to be a discussion, is is being used in a lot more harmful ways than anything right now. And I always appreciate you calling it out and standing up for all of us um, LGBTQ plus listeners out there, even non-listeners. Um, anyways, I need to stop rambling now. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for years of fantastic podcast content. And here's to 300 more episodes. Thank you, guys. Go take a fat shit in your hat. <laughs> Ha 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 ha!
So, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, Lethbridge, musician. Yep. The only other musician I know out of Lethbridge was Katie Lang. That's right. She has a constant craving for dark poutine, maybe. <laughs> the big bone gal from Southern Alberta. Right. Katie Lang had so many good songs. Yeah, I like Katie Lang a lot. I would like to, I would, hey, send us some of your, if, if you're a musician, send us some of your music or some of your recordings. There might be issues with playing it on the show, but yeah, we'd love to hear your music. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All righty. So is it, as per usual, it is now time for donut money donors and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. PayPal, all that kind of stuff. And so let's look. It doesn't look like we have any patrons this week, but we do have a donut money donor this week. Yay. And it is from Riley Wilson. And Riley says, Hey, fellers, longtime listener, first time donut supplier. I hope half a dozen <laughs> is enough. Anyway, thanks for all the entertainment and be sure to go crap in or duke in your toque, whatever it is the kids say. Feel free to redact this part from the episode, and I won't read that. So there you go. So, uh, oh, the the person goes, Riley goes on to suggest a case for us. So thank you so much, Riley. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Riley also sent me an email uh, with more information about that particular case. So yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll look into it. I'm, I'm, uh, it's on my list of things to investigate. For sure. I don't know what he does for a living, but he, he lives the life of Riley. He lives the life of Riley. Don't we all? No. Um, I was herkle-durkling a little this morning, but not I kind too of, much. I, I feel like I kind of live the life of Riley, if that means enjoying life. I think that's what it means. Like, some people will say the life of Riley is not doing anything, but it's not. Like, it's just enjoying what you do, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I enjoy what I do. And someone, except I'm for, sure, will correct us. <laughs> ex, ex, except, except for when the microphone fell off the desk four times during this episode. Right. And and they didn't, people, our audience didn't oh. see or hear that. Uh, but Matthew's, the, the air in Matthew's room went blue. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike got me this great arm to yep. attach to the desk. But to my the desk fantastic is... microphone that I provided. Right, but it had, the desk has this like bumpy thing. You can't just like put it on, and and the arm fell off twice. And and Matthew, um, and I don't do this often, but I lost my my poop in my toque and swore yeah. quite a lot. You and there was about there was about twenty minutes of me fighting with the microphone arm. Um, yeah, and me <laughs> laughing the whole time. <laughs> so Mike's laughing. I'm bringing other tables in from other rooms, trying to figure it out. So <laughs> the things we do to keep you informed and entertained. <laughs> well, like I say, the offer still stands. I'll buy you a new desk if you want one. It's not a big deal. No, no, I, I do want one. It's, uh, but I'll, I'll get one myself. Thank you. No, this one. This one was a disappointment from day one. Anyway, thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. 
for a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. So there you go. That's it for this episode of Dark Poutine. There's another book coming too, very very soon in the spring. We hope. Uh, maybe yeah. someday. I'll, maybe someday I'll get one out as well. Maybe someday. So maybe uh, someday. Until next time, don't. Is it going to be, be the spring? Is it? Wait, wait, stop. Well, spring. This summer. is exciting news for everyone. Spring, summer. Mm-hmm. We're looking forward to it, Mike. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye. (laughs) Oh, just gaily dancing to our out music. What's this music? This is the music I used to for the show out. Is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Has it always been? Yes. No. Yep. Ever since you've been here. <laughs>